On July 1st, Mexicans head to the polls to elect a new president in Congress. But here in Canada, where you'd be forgiven for thinking that NAFTA is a bilateral instead of a trilateral negotiation, little attention has been paid south of the U.S. With a populist, some would describe as Mexico's Bernie Sanders, leading comfortably in the polls, questions for us here in Canada. Is Mexico poised to be the next country to ride the wave of populism and look inward? What's the mood in Mexico heading to the polls? And what's at stake for Western Canada on issues like NAFTA and energy? In this Mexico edition 2018 special edition podcast, we're partnering with the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI, to take a closer look at Canada's distant, often forgotten neighbor, Mexico, the changes at foot and what it all means. We now head to Mexico City to join our colleagues at the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations. This is What the West. Welcome to the 14th episode of What the West from the Canada West Foundation, or given today's topic, perhaps Hola y Bienvenida, que Oeste, de Fundación Oeste de Canada. As you can tell, today we're going to be taking a look at our forgotten neighbor, our fifth largest trading partner, and Donald Trump's other favorite punching bag, Mexico. In less than two weeks, Mexico will have national elections, and as a result, we will soon have a new government on the other side of the NAFTA negotiating table. I'm Carlo Day, Director of the Trade and Investment Center here at the Canada West Foundation, and I'll be your host for two special edition podcasts on what the Mexican elections will mean for Western Canada. We're honored to be able to partner with the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, El Consejo Mexicano de Asuntos Internacionales, or COMEXI, the premier public foreign policy organization in Mexico. All of today's guests, including your host, are members of the council, and we're delighted to be able to bring their deep expertise and on-the-ground insider uh, expertise to our listeners. Today, we'll get some background on the elections look at the candidates and the issues. In our next podcast, after the election, we'll take a deep dive into the results to learn more about the winner, their cabinet, the Congress, and how the new government will impact our relationship with Mexico, the NAFTA negotiations, and Western Canadian investment in Mexico. But you have to walk before you run, and before we can understand how the elections will impact us here in Western Canada, we need some background. So today, we start with the basics. Who's running? And what are the issues? To look at who's running, we're delighted to have Jose Carreño join us. Jose is one of the preeminent foreign policy writers and journalists in Mexico and a National Journalism Award winner. Uh, he has worked for El Universal, Notamex as a correspondent in Washington, D.C. He also hosts a weekly foreign affairs show on Mexican television. And uh, he actually had me on as a guest once. So it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast and to uh, reverse, uh, put the shoe on the other foot and have you do an en- interview in English, Jose. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Carlo. It's a pleasure. 
So, Jose, there are five candidates on the ballot for president in Mexico. And for the first time, we actually have two independents running in the Mexican uh, presidential election, a historic event for the country. So I thought we'd start by working our way up the polling numbers and start by discussing the two independents. Though neither of the two really has a chance of winning, if you look at the polls, the fact that they're on the ballot in and of itself means something. So can you tell us a little bit about the two independents and what their presence on the ballot means? Will they have any impact on the election? And if so, what will it be? Look, actually, there is only one independent. Uh, Margarita Calderon uh, uh, fell over, decided to to leave about a month, about 15 days ago. So uh, the only independent at this moment is uh, Jaime Rodriguez Calderon, uh, so-called El Bronco, uh, governor of uh, Nuevo León State, who is at this point with about uh, 2.3, 2.5% of the intention of vote. He is, uh, in a way, the uh, well, the Joker of the of of, of the campaign. He has uh, made a number of sort of uh, weird uh, proposals, like uh, looping the hands of uh, of of, of uh, transgressors or corrupt people, and uh, uh, things like that. That has have, has had a very a uh, funny uh, reaction, uh, sort of a funny, uh, a lot of criticisms, but his role has been uh, more than anything else, just the joker of the campaign with a very little impact in terms of the, of, of the real vote. If, uh, if you want to go with the other candidates, well, the candidate is, uh, at this point is Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the, the leader of Morena, uh, he's uh, by far at this point the most favor- favored one by the by the polls. He's with about forty one point seven percent of the polls intention of votes in the last one. Um, then you had uh, Ricardo Anaya Cortez from the center right uh, uh, and the sort of center left coalition uh, the, between the PAN center right and the PRD. Democratic Revolution Party center-left, who is with about 21% of the intention of vote. And uh, Jose Antonio Mid-Curibreña, the last one is the with the PRI, or uh, with the coalition PRI, the PBA, Partido Verde Green Party, and Partido uh, Pan, Panal, another party. It's about uh, 13.6%, the most recent one. There are other polls that uh, give larger numbers, bigger numbers to a mid, relatively smaller to uh, Anaya, but uh, still give a very large advantage to López Obrador. So for our our listeners in Canada, we could say that the PAN or the center-right party is a little bit like the conservative party here in Canada. The PRD or the PRD is a little bit like our uh, new Democrat party, uh, left of center party. And then we have the PRI, the Nash, the natural governing party of Mexico, some would joke. And that's a little bit like our liberals. Uh, would you say that's a fair assessment? It is, uh, well, in very general terms, if, for the sake of comparison, it's all right. But the, if, if you see the three, with the three leading coalitions at this point are a mishmash from center and right, uh, center, left and right, all of them, 
the PRI is uh, aligned with a Green Party, then uh, with what with what was a party created by a teachers' coalition in uh, about six years ago, and uh, it has been always since. Uh, uh, the, 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 a camera of resonance between center and center right and left in the, in the national politics. It has been always there has been always a, 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 a struggle between the different wings. Then you have the PAN and the PRD that is sort of an, a natural coalition. The PRD became was born in 1988 as a result of the coalition of uh, a number of groups from the Partido Comunista, which was uh, Marxist left to uh, dissidents of the PRI that define themselves as uh, social democrats and so uh, and a number of groups in between and even former guerrillas so from pale pink to rabbit red that's the, that was the coalition <laughs> at the point and the PAN was created in 1929 39 actually by uh, uh, people by by people that by by groups that were born out of the Cristero coalition and as a way to try to put a counterweight to the PRI, to then what was then the PRI. So uh, so it was it, it's a sort of a weird coalition. Then you have Morena, which is not a party, it's, it's a movement where the, 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 the weight, the, the balance is centered in Andres Manuel López Obrador and his personality and where a lot of peoples and groups are trying at this point to uh, wait on Mr. Lopez Obrador's decisions and choices. So you have people that are dissidents from the PAN, and then you have a lot of people who are dissidents of the PRI, and people who are dissidents of the PRD, and people that, is, that are just upset with the government and with the system itself. So that is a, a huge mishmash. So the, the, it is a and this is uh, this creates. Let, let, put, let me put it this way: this is uh, an election, a post-political election. Hmm. Wow. So that is quite different from the situation here in Canada, and that's important for our, our, our listeners to know. Just as a quick note, you also have a Green Party in Mexico, even though they don't have a presidential candidate. But uh, your Green Party is quite a bit different than the Green Party here in Canada. Uh, me, well, yes, in many ways, although uh, I have to say that they are sort of trying very timidly to correct themselves. But uh, you're wrong. They are allied with the PRI at this point. They, 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 they are allied and uh, supporting Mr. Mead. However, there is, uh, and this is the, 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 this is part of the problem, is that uh, the, the ecologist side is, let's say, a lot weaker than their corruption side. <laughs> that is uh, that is quite a description of a party. So let's take a, a turn and take a dive into the the candidates and learn a little bit more about them. Let's leave AMLO or Andres Manuel López Obrador to the end and start with the PRD and the PRI candidates. So can you give us a little bit of background where these guys are from, uh, what their strengths and weaknesses are, and how they're doing in the election? Well, uh, Ricardo Anaya is perhaps, in a, in, in, in a perverse way, might be the most interesting one. He's uh, a very ambitious nerd. 
So, sorry, which party is he with? The PAN. Okay. The Partido de Acción Nacional, and he's the candidate for the coalition between the PAN and the PRD. He's uh, he, he's a nerd. Let me put it that way, and in, not in the in a despective way, that he has rise through the ranks, has uh, moved around, has uh, manipulated and done his thing. So he became president chairman of the PAN in uh, about two, three years ago. And from that position, he was able to displace a lot of the older panistas. Uh, Margarita Zavala, the, the Calderon, the former candidate, was uh, one of the people that was displaced by uh by, by Anaya, uh, pe- uh, some people from the older order of, of the PAN, like uh, the Cruthier, like uh, the Cruthier family, were are dis- still disgusted with the, w- with Anaya, are fighting his uh, are fighting against him, the, and there is uh, so much bad blood that there are quite a few panistas that uh, have sworn. To never vote for uh, for Anaya, no matter what, or no matter who. Uh, but but he's very capable. He has resu- he has become he has uh, he can be seen as a very able debater. Has been a very aggressive uh, speaker in many ways. He has been the only one that uh, has been able to at least go toe-to-toe with López Obrador in the, in the debates. And uh, even if his personality is not exactly something that uh, uh, is agreeable for a lot of people, he's, he's still on the, on the lower 20s pers- of, uh, of approval. And still, uh, according with quite a few polls, the number two in the national uh, in, in, in the in the national election, uh, of course he is uh, the, his coalition goes beyond the PRD. There is also, for instance, Movimiento Ciudadano, which is another uh, a smaller center left center left party. But uh, this Movimiento Ciudadano is also as Anaya in uh, well disgusted with López Obrador. So this is the coalition of the people who is against López Obrador, no matter what. Uh, mm. Then you have uh, the other side, you have Mid Curibreña, possibly the best prepared of them all. He has been twice Minister of uh, Treasury, has been Minister of Foreign Relations, has been Minister of the Social Development. He's a technocrat per life. He's uh, a good man, actually. He's a very personable, personable person, if you want to put. But he has a debt to hits against. He has a deficit of charisma, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and he's representing uh, the PRI without being a member of the PRI. He has served under Calderon, the, the last uh, Acción Nacional president. And, uh, and and now with uh, Peña Nieto, both of them are quite unpopular uh, in, in, in Mexico. So he has this sort of weight uh, around his neck, uh, even if he's uh, recognized as the best prepared of them all. 
He's also, of all the candidates, and we'll get to AMLO in just a second, but of all the candidates, I would guess he's the one that knows Canada the best as well. Uh, he's been up here quite a few times. Uh, he was foreign minister during the visa uh, fiasco. So uh, of all the candidates, you would say probably that he's the one that knew Canada the best? Uh, I would say that he's the only one, actually. <laughs> True. It's. Uh, uh, I mean, look, look. The uh, Canada, we love Canada. We Mexicans love Canada. We have no idea why, but we love them. Uh, we like the Canadians. We have uh, a lot of sympathy for Justin Trudeau at this point. For the Trudeaus in general. The, uh, so, uh, yes, we. Believe that I could say. I dare to say that both. Uh, both Lopez Obrador and Danaya might have, have sympathy for Canada one way or another. We have uh, we might have some points of contention around the mining companies, but that's about it. And uh, mostly, but mostly there is sympathy for Canada. There is uh, we like the, the country, we like the people. The maybe because we do not know them, and because we, you do not know us, maybe. But the point is, we have uh, the, that there is an old joke in Mexico, likely in Canada too. That the biggest problem between Mexico and Canada is the United States. So yes, and that's more true now than than ever. Yes. So uh, so yes, we, but none of them. Mid Curibeña is possibly the only one that has any idea about Canada and the composition of Canada government, the Canada, the political, social, economic Canada. The other two, and Nadia might have an idea because he's a, a person who reads. Uh, has, has a very good reading. He's, he's a reader. He's a man with a very culture, with a lot of culture. But uh, I mean, uh, uh, for the, the third one, who is uh, Lopez Obrador, is a man that only his first trip abroad was maybe three years ago to, to Washington D.C. in a very brief way, and never and since he has been a couple of times in Spain and Europe in general another time in the, in the U.S. And that's as far as I know uh, on his uh, forays abroad. Uh, he's not a man with, a, with real and internationalist streak. He has people in his family and around him who are very much in the international side, very much involved in international issues, but he personally has no idea. Hmm. So let's take a deeper dive into AMLO now. Uh, you know, the questions uh, around here in Canada that we get mostly from uh, the, the U.S. media portray him as a Chavista, a populist uh, in the left-wing Latin American caricature that we that we have here further north, uh, you know, a populist who's going to turn into a dictator. Uh, but we're also starting to get a second um, consensus opinion emerging that he's more of a pragmatist. No, he was actually a governor of the largest state in Mexico. He's had to collect trash and pay workers. So he's, as opposed to the U.S. president, he's actually familiar with how to run a government, and that's going to temper him. So what's your opinion on AMLO? Where does he fall in between these caricatures? Or are they both completely wrong and he's something else? I think, okay, I think that both of them are sort of wrong, but the wrongest one is the first. Uh, I mean, you uh, you could say that AMLO is a populist, yes. 
you could say that, um, but you also can say that AMLO is much more a, pop, a nationalist populist in the mold of the PRI, the old PRI, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, where uh, the PRI had a, a lot, the, the PRI governments had a doctrine of, uh, of a very strong government ruling the economy and ruling society. Uh, not necessarily a dictatorship, but not necessarily democratic either. Uh, you could say that the Lopez Obrador at this point is somewhere in that model. The, 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 his movement tells you everything. He has his uh, head of uh, campaign is a woman called, uh, named Tatiana Cloutier, who um, she is a dissident of the PAN. Her family is an old PAN family from the northwest of the country. It's uh, not necessarily not specifically conservative, but not progressive, more center right, if you want to put it that way. His uh, head of uh, economic advisors is a very rich, uh, a very important entrepreneur in Mexico. Uh, his uh, and his advisors are mostly from. Uh, Economic advisors, at least, uh, are mostly from the, let's say, from uh, the entrepreneurial side and the pro-government side of the economy. He has, of course, his uh, the other side, the, the leftist uh, movements that are around him and who believe that they might be able to sway him through uh, the big large demonstrations, big marches, things like this, you know, big uh, concentrations of people demanding this or that, or pushing against uh, uh, privatizations or the private enterprise. So uh, he will uh, he'll be in the middle of that. Now there is people near to him that tells me that he will be much more pragmatist in every sense of the word than what everybody believes. First, because there is a reality. The, they need uh, the, the, any government needs resources to work. Second, because his big problem is going to be that uh, the biggest problem is going to be that he will have to rule with what is there in place at this point, and they will have to tame the, the, the bureaucracy. They will have to tame and to uh, 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 and, uh, and to correct. The, the, the government itself, they will have also to deal with the United States. They have no intentions, or so they say, to uh, overthrow or to over, or to put aside the 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 the, the, the NAFTA the NAFTA treaty. So they'll have a, a lot of realities to deal with. They are very conscious of it, and I guess their biggest problem will be how to uh, sort of. Uh, give uh, service to the offers that AMLO has made in the last uh, few years, and he will have to juggle uh, uh, his promises to his uh, supporters. That, and then also, of course, he will have to realize that he will be governing for the, for the whole country, and a country that will be about 50% divided against him.
Right. And so this bit about his having to pay for the promises he's made uh, during the elections, there are, as a populist, you engender uh, a lot of support for an agenda that uh, generally promises a lot of things. So you think that will constrain him on energy reform? Uh, they're going to need, the government's going to need the money from the energy reform. So a lot of folks abroad are worried that he's going to roll back the energy reforms. You see this in the headlines all the time, uh, the less informed headlines. But it sounds like you're saying that he'll be constrained and he might not even want to do that. I think that he will give some lip service to that in the sense that uh, he will, uh, he, what he has said uh, is that he, that he will review the contracts. Uh, uh, and some of those contracts, uh, he, he might uh, give... Uh, uh, some hard time to some to some of the contractors, if you want to use the word, but I believe that the, at the end of the day he will they, he will respect most of them, if if not all of them, because it is you you are talking a big a, a big swath swath of the world. We are talking to, not only about American companies or Canadian companies. You are talking Chinese companies and Russian companies. You have so there is a commitment there that uh, cannot be just. Uh, challenged easily he, he will have to uh, uh, abide by, by what is there maybe grudgingly but he will have to so for the folks listening in the alberta oil patch if we see some movement or hear some rhetoric uh, coming from amlo should he win the election uh, we should expect this not be surprised by it but also not too worried about it it's probably politics he needs to play to his base but he'll be constrained uh, by the fiscal realities in Mexico. And uh, it sounds like uh, he's going to have to say something about the energy reform that we may not like, but uh, that's just politics. It's politics. Look, he's uh, promising to abide by the law. He's promising, yeah, and in Mexico, the international agreements have a mandatory, uh, have, have, have a mandatory impact on the constitution. So if he abides by the law, he will have to abide by those contracts. So uh, he will have to do some rhetoric against it, of course. He may rail against the government that did such uh, terrible agreements, but at the end of the day, he will have to. Now, uh, if this uh, this will be a bit uh, stormy, maybe a lot of some noise, but at the end of the day, that he has no choice, I believe. Okay, uh, so final question, Jose. Who's going to win the election and who's going to win the Congress? Jesus, uh, if everything goes the way that uh, the polls are saying, it's definitely Lopez Obrador is going to be the, the winner of the presidential election. But at the same time, and he might be, the, and Morena and his coalition might become the largest minority in the in Congress, without in a Congress that will not have any majority, I mean there will be a 40, 40, 40 maybe fifty percent of of the Congress going to for Morena. You might have maybe twenty to thirty percent of Congress going for the PAN. There were about fifteen twenty percent for the for the PRI, and the rest for smaller groups. Now, uh, having said that, uh, at this point, anything is possible. The uh, polls in Mexico have a the, have a the bad habit of being wrong. 
Great. Well, thank you, Jose. That was extremely, uh, extremely interesting and, and even more useful, I think, for our listeners, uh, especially the folks here in Alberta, but across the West, rest of the West. Uh, we look forward to having you back again sometime. And for folks in Canada who are looking for a great source of information uh, about Mexican foreign policy and politics in Mexico, I would urge them to use Google Translate and read your columns in El Geraldo. Again, Jose, thank you very much. Carlo, thank you very much. You're very generous. Welcome back. Now that we've had a primer on the candidates, we want to take a look at the major issues. And spoiler alert, folks, NAFTA may not be at the top of the list. Taking us through part two of today's podcast, we are now joined by Agustin Barrios Gomez and Ricardo Smith. Ricardo is the head of the youth division of COMEXI. He's also a consultant at the Foundation for Sustainable Human Development and a graduate of CIDEP, uh, to my mind, the premier academic institution in Mexico. Agustin is a former congressman representing a Mexico City district. He is also a former Mexican director of the 2009 Binational Canada-Mexico Initiative. Agustin knows Canada well, not just from the initiative, but he grew up in Ottawa, and was a classmate, as I like to tell people, of Justin Trudeau. So, Augustine, before we get started, and there's a online, other line here is your spot as a Grand Marshal of next year's Stampede Parade. When you were in school with Justin, did you pull a Matthew Perry and beat him up? <laughs> Actually, Perry was a schoolmate of mine at Ashbury College. My father was ambassador of Mexico to Canada, and he was good friends with, uh, with Pierre Elliott Trudeau when he was a prime minister. Justin used to come over to the house because we had a swimming pool. We were, I mean, we were really small kids, but he's a great guy. And, and, uh, and no, I never, I, I, I never hazed him like, uh, like Perry did. Uh, okay. Well, uh, you know, that's half of Alberta groaning and, but I uh, will forgive you. So let's, uh, <laughs> among other things, because he was bigger than I was. <laughs> okay. That doesn't count. So let's dive right in, uh, for each of you. What do you think are the three top issues in, in, in this election? And then we'll go back and we'll dive into the issues. But uh, why don't we start with you, Ricardo? Uh, what do you think are the three top issues in this election in Mexico? Well, I think the first and foremost issue right now is corruption. Um, it's it, it, Not only because it is an, a structural issue, it, it is something that we have been struggling with uh, during the, the last, I think, uh, two or three decades in Mexico, um, but also because recently, we've, especially during this administration, presidential administration headed by the PRI government of Enrique Peña Nieto, we've had a lot of corruption scandals, not only at the local level with um, uh, three or four governors uh, doing really serious uh, things with public funds, um, like using uh, public money uh, that was meant for for kids uh, for kids chemotherapy uh, instead going to 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 their personal wealth, uh, but also we've had scandals at the federal level uh, involving uh, not only the president but also members of his cabinet. So um, right now, corruption has become one of the main issues. Uh, I think the, the the thing that everyone is talking about, every every party, every candidate has has a proposal on corruption, whether it is strong or not clear or not. Um, and, and also civil society has become very involved in, in, in corruption. There has uh, many different organizations have bloomed and they have mostly led the fight against corruption. Uh, one of President Peña Nieto's reforms 
package of reforms actually and uh, coincidentally was uh, about corruption and how to fight it. Um, he tried along with, with, uh, with other parties to uh, build a national system against corruption, which was a set of institutions that were meant to prosecute, investigate, prosecute crimes related to, to public funds. Um, so I think that would be the first one. Um, but and then second, I would say security. Uh, right now, we, uh, we have 2017 was the most violent year uh, in modern history after 2011, which uh, had the previous record in terms of homicides. Um, right now, what is happening is that after um, the strategy that was implemented since 2006 uh, until 2012, um, this, those big cartels uh, that controlled the drug market in, in Mexico and also um, this path that, that traveled from South America to North America, they have fragmented into small units that have become more violent and also more disorganized, uh, but, all, but, 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 but dangerous for the, for the population. So um, 2007 was very violent. Um, and, and I think also one of the main problems that has arised and no candidate has been able to address because the, 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 the causes are, are unclear is that um, political violence coming from, from, from criminal organizations has risen in the, in the last year. Um, right now, uh, since September 2017 until June, we've had 113 politicians, including both candidates and outgoing uh, politicians. And, and when I say politicians, I mean mayors, I mean council people, I mean um, local deputy candidates. Um, they have been murdered across the country. Um, this is serious because this, for some people, this means that um, criminal organizations are trying to infiltrate into local, state, and um, sometimes federal governments. Um, and as I said, I think it's serious because no candidate has been able to, to give a, 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 a correct or clear diagnosis on what is happening and then propose something about it. And I would say in third place, um, economic growth, but mostly related on, on how to distribute this growth uh, towards the poorest people, how to fight poverty. And, um, and poverty has been on Mexico's uh, policy agenda, I think, since the 80s when, when those big programs against poverty started, policy programs. Um, but right now, I think what is new in this discussion is inequality and how inequality is not only um, affecting Mexican democracy, but also how it, um, it, is, it is a big economic issue and it uh, decreases economic competitivity. So th mm. those were the, my, my, my three topics in the... So like corruption, yeah. security slash political violence, and the hundred and I, I didn't realize it was 113. I thought it was still 112 politicians who have been killed. So corruption, security slash political violence, and income inequality and economic growth. Okay, Augustine. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think Ricardo did a great job in in in, in giving the top three: uh, corruption, violence, and uh, and and economic growth. And that's actually where NAFTA comes in. But I'd like to go back just briefly because I think that there's more value to be had in 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 commenting the election. Um, so there, this is very much, and this is something that uh, that Jose Carreño was talking about. This is very much a post ideology election, right? Um, and I think that that's very important. You mentioned this whole ideological streak. Um, if you remember, I actually campaigned with Andres Manuel López Obrador on two different occasions. Um, I forgot that. Yeah, I, I was with uh, I was with Ricardo Anaya. Uh, we were we were we were 
we were members of the same legislature, so we were together for three years. He actually, most of his position vis-a-vis -vis the United States is something that he actually got from me originally. And with respect to Meade, um, as you know, the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, our sister organization here, uh, worked very closely with him when he was foreign minister. So I've had a chance to, 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 to deal with all three of the candidates. I think the thing that, that, that I would highlight uh, for, for our listeners the most is the fact that AMLO is not um, your, your, your typical populist uh, in, the, in the Latin American quote unquote uh, vein. So the, for, for the very first thing and the, the most obvious thing is that he's not anti-American, which is incredible. Um, I think he actually might be one of the last Mexican populists that is not anti-American because it's just such an easy thing to be. And of course, now with, with the humiliation that's going on, it's going to be very hard for anti-Americanism not to take a leading role. But at least in this election, we do have a, a populist who is not screaming about, you know, Yankee imperialism and all that crap that we hear from other people. So that, I think that's very, very important. The but other, but how, can that, how can that be given what... Uh given what's going on well because of, it, it, because he is very much in that in that old pre-vein where he's like he's very pragmatist he knows that he knows that i mean we have the we have the equivalent of the population of canada in the united states mexico and canada are the two most integrated large countries on the planet we have 37 million mexicans and mexican americans out of which 80 percent are either u.s citizens or legal residents so they're not undocumented immigrants unlike so that's 37 million in the u.s in the u.s of mexicans and mexican americans and and by far the large majority are either legal residents or u.s citizens so it's not an undocumented phenomenon and at the same time um you know that you know we've got 580 billion dollars worth of trade across the most the most legally cross border on the planet um, and so like this massive integration that's very real, Mexico is at the same time the number one destination for the American diaspora, such that at any given time, we've got between one and three million Americans living in Mexico, which is between four and 12 times what Canada has. So this massive levels, these massive levels of integration are very real and they're very palpable, even for a person with limited education, such as Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, he gets that. Um, there's also an aspect that, that, that hasn't been mentioned enough. He's, he's very much also a born-again Christian. Um, and, hmm. and, and this is something that I think, you know, he, he, he's irascible by nature. And I think that, he, that his, his religiosity or his religion, which is a private affair, because, of course, in Mexico, we actually take that more seriously than the Americans do, uh, the church, separation of church and state. But, but, the, but at the end of the day, he has looked to his, to his spirituality or to his religion to temper his, 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 his temper, if you'll forget, forgive the, 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 uh, the repetition. So I think that that's an element that's very important because it plays into this uh, am-love, right? This, this, this idea that, that, he, that he's not looking for revenge, that he's actually the one who's going to bring people together, that he's actually played up. Uh, once and again, there's also another very important element to this um, that that hasn't been highlighted enough in discussions with respect to Andres Manuel, which is the fact that he's also not about soaking the rich. That's incredible. Uh, a populist in in from you know in 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 a in a sort of in a pseudo Latin American country. I'm not completely convinced about the whole Latin America thing, but let's just say that it is. Um, that is not talking about soaking the rich. He was asked expressly in the in in the debate that took place a couple of days ago, 
he said, are you going to increase taxes or are you going to ask the rich to pay to pay more? And, you know, that, that's sort of a setup for a populist, right? Well, he came out very directly and he said, no, absolutely not. I'm not going to increase taxes. We don't need to, because what we're going to do is we're going to tackle corruption and that's going to give us the many billions of dollars that we're going to need to, uh, to, to redirect um, uh, spending to something that's much more efficient and more effective. So I think th those are very, very important issues. Um, now, as a governor of Mexico City, which is not actually the largest uh, uh, of the 32 uh, confederated uh, entities, it is actually the second largest after Mexico State, which is much larger. But he did govern Mexico City, which, as you know, is a megalopolis. It's a world city. It's massive. Uh, it's the eighth largest uh, city economy on the planet. Um, and it is and, and, and it is extremely dynamic and very cosmopolitan. And if you look at his record as governor of Mexico City, he because people say mayor, in reality, it's not a mayorship. It's actually a governorship. And there are 16 local mayors that are more like mayors. So he was governor of Mexico City. And as governor of Mexico City, he actually left behind one of the largest public works projects, which was uh, which was this uh, second level of the of, of the of the main thoroughfare, the Periferico in Mexico City. Um, he also he also laid the groundwork, which I think has been also lost. Uh, for for Marcelo Ebrard, who was the who was the one who came after him, as you know, there's no re-election, um, to implement the most successful territorial control in terms of public security that has been done in Mexico. And he, you know, via twenty thousand closed circuit television cameras, via GPSs in in, um, in in patrol cars to make sure that they don't leave their their area of, of of patrol, and to have this territorial control that has actually kept Mexico City in terms of being a large city. Mexico City, as you know perfectly well, is actually relatively safe. Um, it's a city that you know on on a day to day basis, uh, uh, professionals like us who, who go in different parts of the city don't. It's not something that we think about, and I think that that's something that's very important, and it is very much. Uh, due to uh, what Andres Manuel, in conjunction with uh, Marcelo Ebrard, did way back then. So these are, I think, very important points have got, that have gotten lost. And coming back to this corruption thing, I think in 2006, as you know, Andres Manuel lost the election by less than 1%. And the reason for that was that uh, people were actually voting with their pocketbooks. Um, the private sector was very successful in painting him as a danger to Mexico. What has happened since then is two things. One, there was no there in the last sexenio, in this last uh, uh, last six years of, of President Peña Nieto, there hasn't been a significant um, uh, project like there was in the Fox years, um, where 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 people two million Mexican families got new homes during the Fox years. That didn't happen this time around. So there's less to lose if you want to look at it that way. And the second thing is that you can only cry wolf so many times, right? So the sky's falling, the sky's falling. Well, the sky didn't fall, and it actually, and and, and insofar as it did fall, it, it actually fell in the areas of public security and in corruption. So people aren't buying that anymore. And I think people back in 2006 were 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 scared that they might, you know, that they might have to lose their homes if there was um, economic uncertainty. And that ghost of of the of the economic crisis of 1994-95, which is a little bit what was what was being used to scare people, is no longer that prevalent. 
Um, the majority of the voters are actually very young, even still in this country, despite the fact that, that uh, fertility rates have declined. This is still considered a young country. And most people don't really remember that. And so now they see they see corruption and, and the violence that has been um, prevalent in many parts of the country. They see that as a bigger risk than the economic issues uh, and, and the potential economic instability that could come from somebody who doesn't have the same stewardship of the economy as as, 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 as the 36 years of center-right governments that we've had in Mexico. I mean, consider that. There have been 36 years of center-right governments in this country, and, um, and people are no longer buying the story that AMLO is more dangerous than, than, than a PRI that is basically a, a kleptocracy. Hmm. So that's a little bit, so some folks here are going to think about what's happened in Alberta with so many years of progressive conservative governments and the, the radical change that, that we've had. So that, that's an interesting analogy. Ricardo, you know, 36 years, people who have grown up only under um, centrist governments. Do you think that with the younger generation coming up, those who are coming to vote for the first or second time, that uh, their feelings about AMLO are different, uh, obviously different than their parents, but as what Augustine said, influence the younger generation that's coming out to vote. Yeah, totally. I think this is a major thing right now in this election. Um, first of all, because um, AMLO really has changed the tone uh, in which he talks to the, to, to the citizens. Um, and also, I think a very important part of it is that um, for young people, when when AMLO's uh, opposers, they, they talk about populism and Latin American populism. For them, I think it's, it's a term that really does not ring a bell. And, and AMLO really has changed the way he, he, he portrays himself and he conducts himself uh, in the sense that uh, right now we cannot really say that he is a, a leftist radical populist. Uh, first of all, he has allied, uh, he was first allied with the, with the extreme left which, which is the Workers' Party PT. But right now, he has allied himself for this election with PES, which is, a, a as, as Agustin said, a born-again Christian uh, organization, a party. And so right now, I think that has pulled him to the center, right? Um, and, and I think his campaign has been really a success. I think AMLO's campaign in 2017 and 2018 is the most successful political campaign among uh, the, the candidates in Mexico. Um, he has been able mostly to uh, address and to really get to the young population uh, through social media. And I think that is a breakthrough in Mexico because, um, of course, there have been allegations of, of every party using bots and um, and the social network manipulation. Uh, but I think there really is a, a proportion of, of AMLO's, a great proportion of AMLO's message that is authentic and it authentically reaches young audiences who have, as, as myself, who have uh, grown and have been raised uh, during the, the during this 30 years of, of center-right governments and uh, in which inequality, in, during which time inequality has risen, um, violence right now is rampant, um, governance is quite quite a disappointment. And AMLO has been able to catch all these issues and, and what, we, what we feel and um, at least prove that he has a, a correct diagnosis and that he knows what to do. His policy proposals are, are, are ambivalent and are not really clear, but uh, I think he has been able to um, um, capitalize this, this lack of clarity for young voters. And um, so right now you can see his campaign, which is headed by Tatiana Cloutier, 
uh, as, as Jose Carreño mentioned, um, they have actually built a special platform for young audiences in which they produce PDFs, they produce memes. Um, it is, I think this is a, a, a change in how political communication has worked in Mexico, um, which, and I think this was uh, a, a long, a long pre-tradition of, of uh, not having a, a democratic um, sense of how politicians sh should communicate to their citizenry. Um, and I think also um, there has been a change in preferences. I think right now, um, young voters really don't have, have a clear position in the spectrum. There is no need for AMLO to, to um, charge more taxes because I, I don't think uh, young voters really, really want this. I think um, corruption has, corruption mostly and violence and uh, inequality have changed uh, the, the, spect the political spectrum, the preference spectrum in Mexico. Hmm. So that's interesting, the, the importance of social media. I remember reading that the PRI, the old traditional natural governing party, uh, when they got into the social media business with this election and their candidate Miede, the, the issue of bots uh, did come up and there were charges that the PRI, well, their media, social media platform was nothing but bots. Yeah, and I think, well, of course, this is a burgeoning business, not only in Mexico, but around the world of uh, companies creating bots that, that are used as, um, as resonating boards that, that spread messages that are built by parties. Um, and of course, there, have, there has been evidence of bots in Mexico operating for every candidate. Um, not, we, we, cannot, we cannot point to a certain political party using it, but, um, but, but yeah, and I think, but I think mostly the difference is that the message that is spread, especially by AMLO, a, a certain degree by, by Ricardo Anaya, um, they're really starting to think about how young people communicate right now in this, in this digital era, how they get their, where, where they get their information from, which is untraditional sources like Twitter and Facebook and the focusing ads on it. Hmm. So <clears throat> turning to our next question, I turned out to be right about one thing in this podcast, and that was neither of you mentioned NAFTA or dealing with the U.S. as a top three issue. I think that's going to catch a lot of our listeners by surprise. Well, I mean, okay, so within the context of what Ricardo and I were saying about uh, about economic growth, there is the issue of NAFTA. NAFTA is sort of a nebulous issue, and it, and it has to do more with the proclivities and the strange philias and phobias of an ethno-nationalist American president than it does with with us. I mean, here the the here the consensus is clear. Um, you know, and 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 AMLO, which is sort of the the anti-establishment uh, 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 candidate in this election, he's been very clear. He's completely pro-NAFTA. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing really that's 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 cre that's been created as a debate. Um, here the question is more, you know, what 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 are the what you know what are the wingnuts in the United States going um, to do to you know to 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 throw a wrench in the system? And I think that that's that's really what what we're worried about. And 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 if I may take the the opportunity, I think you know I'm, I mean Carlo, you you and I've been talking about this for for for, for since the beginning. Um, you know, I've been very very clear with respect to the fact that Canada um, was going to be next. Um, after Mexico, and that it was just a matter of time. And I think um, I'm hoping that this actually, you know, that that, that the latest uh, very very embarrassing episode um, of 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 the, of the U.S. president's treatment of, of Canada and, and and of your prime minister, I think that that has finally made it clear to Canadians that 
you know, that, that this whole idea that there's a special relationship or that somehow Mexico, Canada is better off uh, negotiating by itself vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States and without Mexico. Um, I'm hoping that that has finally been put to rest because, because if it isn't, then I think it's going to do a serious damage to all three countries. Yeah, that's a, you know, that, that, that's a great point. Um, the, the issue about, about whether or not we should negotiate separate bilaterals, that was strong in the beginning. And you could forgive some of the politicians who hadn't been deeply immersed in the history of North America and watching uh, the rise of Trump to, to expect that Canada would continue to just simply skate on. But no, that is starting to die down. But unfortunately, there are still people here who blame Justin Trudeau for what happened uh, last weekend in Charlevoix uh, in, in Quebec at the G7 summit. But no, it's certainly it's certainly so, yeah, no, okay. down. certainly um, every country has their Vichy, you know, uh, collaborationist types that are basically, you know, they're they're going to be protecting their what they see as their economic interests over their over their values. But I think we need to be very clear that 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 sort of appeasement um, is is anti-Canadian um, and it doesn't behoove and it doesn't serve any any of the uh, uh, people any of the 475 million people who live on our continent. And you spent enough time in Canada to actually be able to voice that with uh, credibility. So, you know, the issue of AMLO coming in. How do you think Canada? Mexico relations would fare. We've only got a little bit of time left, but how do you think uh, Canada-Mexico relations would would fare under an well, I think, I mean, the very first thing is that the, the it, it would seem that the person who is going to be the the, the foreign minister is a gentleman by the name of Hector Vasconcelos. Um, Hector Vasconcelos is is a very knowledgeable man. He's a very cultured man. He's he he speaks uh, English very very well, and he speaks French. Um, so I think, you know, Andres Manuel has, has this ability, despite his, his, his limitations with respect to his worldliness and, and, uh, he, and, and being a part of this movement of, you know, uh, it, it, truthiness, right? <laughs> it's not so much what, 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 uh, what, what the facts uh, are, but rather what I feel. Um, and nevertheless, I think what, what, what uh, something in his, in his benefit and something to, uh, to benefit Canada-Mexico uh, relations is the fact that he also delegates. He, he is keenly aware of those issues where he doesn't have all of the facts and he doesn't pretend to have them. And I think that um, his, his instincts have proven, um, have proven to be fairly uh, constructive um, in, in the past. Now, anything could happen, of course, but my experience with him having campaigned with him on a couple of occasions and, and having dealt with him is that his pragmatism is, also allows for a significant amount of um, uh, of delegating authority. And I think that it, given the fact that this new AMLO 2.0, AMLOVE <laughs> character that he's created um, is very much about getting along very well. And, and, and what he's been saying is that the best foreign policy is, is a good domestic policy. And I think that means that he's going to be giving uh, significant uh, free reign to the people who actually know and care about the relationship with respect to Canada. Um, and I think you're going to find in, in, in Mexico uh, uh, an equal, if not e even better, partner uh, if, for North America. Uh, and, and, you know, given, given the idea that we could come to this together. And right now, actually, we are the adults in the room. So it's, it's much more important for us to do this. Uh, we, you know, given the fact that the United States is abdicating that position 
um, of sanity and 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 of uh, and of, of of leadership, then uh, it is especially important for Canada and Mexico to be there uh, and to help the, Amer- the Americans pick up the pieces of of what 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 will definitely come afterwards, which is going to be a massive populist hangover in the United States. And I think we we together can be you know that that can be that voice of reason and those adults in the room that the United States and North America is going to be needing. Yeah, and. Uh, wow. That, that, that's extremely positive. Good. Yeah, and I think um, most of, of what Amelie is going to do has uh, has to do with um, uh, how how public opinion in Mexico is shaping towards NAFTA, uh, international relations, and Canada also. And I think, first of all, when we say that there is a lack of interest in NAFTA, it's not that we don't care and that we hate NAFTA. It's actually the opposite. I think most Mexicans, and according to polls, uh, at least a little bit over 50%, they, they, they favor NAFTA, they think it's important, uh, they think it's, it's a motor for the economy, um, and that's why I think, at a great degree, um, López Obrador's campaign has tried to shift his position on, on our trade agreement. Um, and I think also um, public opinion has changed in the sense that um, right now, as opposed to, I think, two years ago when Trump was elected, we now know that there is life after NAFTA and that we have a plan B and that that plan B can even be better than a bad deal being negotiated under pressure by, by a bully President Trump. Um, that our agreement with, with Canada will, will, will be kept and that our trade with, this, with the United States might be governed by, by the rules of the WTO. So I think that is also uh, one of the things that, that Mexicans are aware of. Uh, and, and the third thing I think is that um, the other 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 platforms of the candidates have uh, reflected this consensus, and they are open to trade. They're 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 favorable to NAFTA. Um, I I don't think that even I I I am reluctant to admit that uh, Lopez Obrador or Ricardo Naya or Jose Antonio Meade personally have a, a a clue on how to deal with with a very complicated President Trump. Uh, but as, as as Agustin said, I think that. Um, Lopez Obrador right now, his strategy is to show people and to show the citizens that he's surrounded by uh, very capable individuals who can t- be in charge of the situation of the bilateral and trilateral relationship. Um, he has great economists. He has Hector Vasconcelos. Um, I think something interesting to know for Canadian audiences is that um, uh, Lopez Obrador right now, he has changed and, and his platform uh, really is about uh, promoting exports, about promoting our relationship with the world. Uh, but also, he's uh, right now what we're trying to figure in Mexico is uh, what what does he mean when he says that he will promote a non-interventionist foreign policy, which might be also important and interesting for foreign audiences to follow in the next years. Um, and I, I think it's unclear for most of us. Uh, just just to, just to finish. Uh, but it's unclear for most of the people who are not close to Morena uh, to figure out what, what's going to happen. Because as I see it, it's there are two groups inside Morena and around Lopez Obrador. The ones who are more outward looking, who are very cosmopolitan, who favor free trade. And, I, and, I, and when I say this, I mean um, his uh, economic advisor, some of them, uh, the proposed finance minister, the proposed economics minister, uh, Hector Vasconcelos himself. But there is also another side of Morena, which who, who are um, much more of a traditional leftist ideology and who might not have that outward looking uh, um, side to them. So I think that, that would be interesting and that, that would be at the center of many debates and, um, and we will be following that. 
Well, that takes us to the end of our time. Uh, I guess I don't have to ask each one of you who you think will win the presidency. It's safe to say I'm not. El Bronco's going to win, and it's going to be really it. exciting. <laughs> exciting is a word. Uh, hey, if El Bronco wins, and we've got El Bronco and Trump, Canada applies to take the UK spot in the EU. That would be um, American yeah. But he's a, he's a cowboy, so maybe maybe we'll head up to uh, maybe maybe we'll head up to Alberta and we'll go to the we'll go to the Calgary Stampede together. <laughs> well, he, he well, Bronco's got the hat and the go. boots already. Uh, for those of our listeners who uh, follow Policy Options, uh, the Institute for Research on Public Policies magazine uh, here in Canada, Augustine will have an article out by the time this uh, this podcast comes out. So we urge our listeners uh, who want to dive a bit more into Canada-Mexico uh, relations and uh, beyond NAFTA to, from the Mexican perspective to follow uh, to look up Augustine's piece. So again, my thanks Thank to you, both bro. of you. Thank you Our thanks to the Consejo Mexicano de Santos Internacionales. And we'll be doing this again with a new set of guests after the election. Thanks again, Carlo. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for joining us. We'd like to also thank our partners at the Consejo Mexicano de Santos Internacionales, or the Mexican Council, Mexican Council on Foreign Relations. We'd also like to thank our guest, Jose Carreño of El Geraldo in Mexico City, Ricardo Smith, the head of the youth division at Comexi, and Agustin Barrios Gomez, a former Mexican congressman, member of Comexi, and a good friend of Canada. Podcast will be available on the Comexi website and wherever you get your podcast, iTunes, uh, the Google Play Store, etc. Join us after the election. We'll return with our friends from Comexi and a new group of panelists to take a deep dive into who won the election, what their policies will be, and what it means for Western Canada, especially focusing on issues like energy reform and the NAFTA negotiations. My, my colleagues here are like, okay, that's enough. Let's get out of here. Let's go get a double-double. Um, okay. And the thing is, I was just in Tim Hortons in Monterey. It was hilarious. I met the guy who, who bought the master franchise. Really nice guy. So anyway, that, that that's that's a more solid foundation for the future of the relationship. Where are they going? Hold on. Yeah, there, there is. Really is a yeah. Tim Hortons in Mexico? <laughs> oh, God help you. You've got bad coffee. <laughs> our condolences. Yeah, our condolences, Mexicans, really. Mexicans love Tim Hortons. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's Canadian well, soft power, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's really? total soft power. <laughs>